Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today's podcast is particularly timely as presidents are often approached by boosters, conference commissioners, and others with their idea of, quote, elevating the school's profile, unquote, by changing conferences. The whole concept of conference realignment is something your school could face during your tenure. The NCAA's financial reporting system is one of several key indicators to monitor the health of your athletics department, as well as the opportunities that might exist in a new conference. My guest today answers the above questions and takes you on a deep dive into the NCAA's reporting requirements for all divisions. The financial reporting system requires all member institutions to collect their data every year and have it meet the annual compliance expectations, also known as the agreed upon procedures. The NCAA aggregates all the data under the IPP, also known as Institutional Performance Program dashboard, and allow member schools to access data, not just on themselves, but on their peers. This becomes especially valuable when you want to, co want to compare categories equally or in apple to an apple counting method and measuring the data the exact same way. My guest today is Katie Davis. She is a CPA and she is on the she is the leader of the higher education and collegiate athletics practice at James Moore and Company. And James Moore is an accounting firm that works with universities, athletic departments, athletic associations, booster clubs, and other higher education related organizations nationwide. If you want to understand college finances and how to use them to make strategically good decisions, this is the right podcast for you. Katie, so glad to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've, we've I've done a lot of podcasts and we've talked a lot about the different aspects of, of higher education and college athletics, but we really haven't taken a good deep dive into not only financial reporting, which is required on an annual basis by the NCAA for Division One and, and other programs, but also the, the value and the value add to have really having a good handle on what the athletic department's financial numbers um, come from. I like to say where the money comes from and where the money goes. Yeah. Um, so let's just start with the basics. In, in your role at James Moore, what kinds of things do you do for colleges and universities? Yeah, so we work in various areas with colleges and universities, whether it's central campus, um, yeah. Athletics is a huge piece, uh, foundations, public media, research, housing, parking, other auxiliaries. I mean, really all over the place. Our firm has a pretty deep um, presence in the higher education space. Um, and really, as CPAs, we have a financial tie to what we do. So we um, do traditional accounting services like audits, um, tax filings, uh, other financial um unique services like NCAA financial reporting through their agreed upon procedures. Um, and then we also do some other things like business process assessments, um, data analytics, data automation, um, and, and other general advisory work. I've also been referred to as a therapist before for some of my clients. <laughs> so, I mean, I think just in general, you know, I personally spend about 90% of my time in higher education work. And I would say a significant portion of that time is spent in college athletics, but I understand 
many of the different facets that um, higher education as a whole um, entails. Got it. You mentioned something right off the top there, agreed upon reporting procedures. Explain to the average person who's listening what that means. Sure. So um, each year, the NCAA requires annual financial reporting based on their categories that they've set up um, for revenues and expenses and other things. And, and it was designed with the intention so that schools could benchmark against other schools and the NCAA could benchmark schools in an apples to apples type format. Um, and that's not necessarily what's actually happening because there's a lot of um, areas subject to interpretation. The NCAA's financial accounting framework isn't a normal accounting framework. So it's very unique. Um, and if, if you don't really understand it or if you interpret it differently, it may look different. Um, so it's really hard to compare but it's an annual reporting. What accompanies that annual reporting um, is an independent accountant comes into the school and performs agreed upon procedures that are laid out by the NCAA every year. And as we go through and make sure, okay, based on this revenue or expense category, that's a significant one to that university, are they doing all of these things to make sure the numbers are good and they're following the appropriate rules for financial reporting? So. We go through that process with the universities and really the intent of that report is to go to the president or chancellor so that they can say, okay, someone from the outside has looked at this and um, feels good with what's going on here since really the presidents and chancellors are the ones with that have the seat at the table at the NCAA as a whole. So, so it kind of just gives them that level of um, assurance as to whether um, their financials are presented appropriately and then some of the underlying transactions and activities that support those are handled appropriately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then one thing that you mentioned, I have two questions to follow up on that. One is just this just a division one thing only or is this responsible for two and three as well? So all divisions report to the financial reporting system. It's also known as FRS. So a lot of the sports business media talks about FRS reports. Mm -hmm. um, all of them report into that. D Division one has to do the agreed upon procedures with an outside accountant annually. Division two does it once every three years. Okay. And division three doesn't have to do it. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, now talk a little bit about how division one programs might use this data to compare themselves to other institutions? Why might that be valuable? I mean, I think they're always wanting to just benchmark, make sure they're on the right track. Um, it could be valuable if you're looking to change something significant, you know, conference realignment. Oftentimes they're comparing to potential future peers as opposed to current peers. Um, but even just in the day-to-day, -day, how are we operating? How are we stacking up against our peers in our conference? How are we stacking up against our competition in this arms race? Um, you know, what are some asks that I can make that we see there's success over here and we're not as successful? And why is that? Um, you know, is it based on the donor base? Is it because we're too much in debt with facilities? Is it because of this, that, or the other? Um, and and really, I think. What's most important, though, is comparing your, yourself to yourself over a period of time okay. and understanding what's changed in the industry, how that's impacted your athletics program. 
you could even compare it to trends for your entire conference um, to kind of see where you stack up against your peers. But um, looking at those trends, I think are really important. And that's um, last week, uh, I believe the NCAA came out with their financial reports um, and some different statistics around what the schools are reporting in through this system and showed trends from back, I think going back as far as 2005 up until 2021, which is the most recent data they have available. And so, um, you know, it's really been interesting to see how over that 17 year period or whatever it was that just how much things have changed. And then really even zeroing in on here's, you know, FBS, here's FCS, here's, you know, your mid-majors that don't have football, um, you know, power five versus group of five, et cetera. And it, it really, even though the financial system on a micro basis isn't necessarily apples to apples, I think this bigger picture really kind of brings light to seeing where things are going and also um, kind of sheds light, at least from my perspective, I might be able to say, okay, this is great and tells some of the story for the industry, but there's some pieces missing. So, you know, that, and that's really where I think the schools can come in and say, okay, well, those pieces are missing. How do we weave that into what we are, you know, benchmarking against, what we are communicating to decision makers, et cetera. So this data is collected by the NCAA and then it's behind a membership wall so that let's say I'm a member of the, uh, the, I, the uh, Big Ten Conference and I can access if I'm, if I'm, if I have a Big Ten Conference ID number, I can access all of the data on the other Big Ten Conference schools. Is that, is that fair to say? You know, I'm not exactly sure how, okay. I believe NCAA can view if you're a member of that school, you can view the finances of any other, the NCAA member. I oh, believe, any, any other NCAA I believe so, okay. but I don't okay. know that for sure because outsiders like me don't have access to that. Right, right. What I see is what probably you see and a lot of other people see, which is the media gathering the information that they can from other sources, usually FOIAs, you know, to the extent that they can building their own database or what the Knight Commission puts together, USA Today puts together, um, that then um, others outside can utilize and, and look at. But so I don't really know for sure um, how the schools utilize their NCAA logins as compared to how they utilize maybe some other external data points um, that are out there because that's really what everyone else sees. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a good clarification point. Thank you. Um, so let's shift to one of the very hot topics for today, which is names, image, and likenesses. Um, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you're seeing in this fast-changing space? <laughs> well, I think fast-changing is the biggest challenge <laughs> and the fact that it's still new. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't think anyone expected collectives to be what they are when this first came about and was even being perceived before it went into effect. Um, so I think, you know, that's a challenge that schools are working around trying to understand. And of course, the NCAA just put out some guidance this week on um, NIL and what the do's and don'ts and how schools can work with athletes or work with these collectives 
to follow the rules versus breaking the rules. Um, I mean, I do think that this NCAA was behind and another challenge is because of that, the states took action and, you know, the term wild, wild west is a four letter word now and we talk about NIL, but I mean, it really led to so much, there's not really any standardization. And so you've got that, you've got transfer portal. I mean, there's definitely a lot of challenges and then you throw collectives into the mix and are they doing the right things or not? And can the university even control what's happening? But the university might feel the repercussions if a collective isn't doing the right thing. Right. So, I mean, I think that's a huge challenge. Um, I think for athletes, the challenge is just trying to figure this out too and balancing, you know, their ambitions and their fears and their limited time they have because they're, they're college students, they're athletes, they're, you know, now trying to put their names out there and earn an income and, and, you know, you see in the media, the football players and the men's basketball players, but there's more than that. And, and some of these things are really great. So shifting to opportunities are really great opportunities for these athletes. I, I do some education and I had an athlete talk to me about, um, you know, she was scared to go into an NIL deal where it would potentially be giving her access to drive a car because she didn't know what that meant. And she didn't feel prepared for that, but she said, but I would love that because I don't currently have a car. Right. And so in those, in those manners, it's, you know, something that could be really great. Um, allowing these athletes to go back and share with their communities, their skills and build up, you know, athletic skills for the next generation and building that mentorship and all of that and having the ability to charge for that, um, I think is a really positive opportunity for these student athletes. So, I mean, there are definitely opportunities for the athletes. And then of course, you know, for the schools, I think there's opportunities, um, you know, they can start to iron out some of the kinks in their programs that they had to put together quickly in the middle of a pandemic with the great resignation. So, you know, it's very hard. I think they didn't start off on the right foot, but time is passing. They're getting more guidance. I think a lot of states are taking legislative action to modify what they're doing. So, I mean, I think there is opportunity to really support these athletes, which is what schools want to do is support their athletes and do it in new ways. And not only are the school, you know, athletes aren't just benefiting from, from this, but I think schools have the benefit of being tied to an athlete, just like an athlete is tied to a school. So, you know, really it's a good brand awareness all around um, and you need to build the brand and engage fans. And these are new ways to be able right. to do that. And so I think there are opportunities there as well. Um, but I think, you know, I, the industry as a whole, I think needs to sit back and evaluate what they've been doing what's been offered to athletes, quantify that, you know, what, what's the cost of excellence for a student athlete today, five years ago, and then what does NIL look like? And it's like, okay, well, what do the athletes really want? And where, cause there's finite resources. What do they really want? Do they want this training table with gourmet food do they want college scholarships? Do they want cash and a car? You know, what do they want? And what's going to make them feel valued and supported and be successful 
as they're becoming adults and trying to showcase their skills to the world um, in athletics and other areas and how how can a school really help support them? Um, so I think it, you know, if you can quantify some of that and then really look back and say what's important, you know, not just saying, well, athletes are already getting X number of dollars in support through scholarships and academic support and training table, et cetera, et cetera. But also saying, well, is that what they want? And it it is a great question. And it also begs the question, can we do some things for some people and other things for other people? You know, not only just from a expense perspective, but also from, a, you know, a, the, the team locker room and com, com, comparing, uh, you know, deals in the locker room. They're worrying about team chemistry. Gender equity plays a role in all of this. Um, so it's really hard to know, but I, I think you, you asked, you've asked a good question for presidents to think about what do the athletes want? And we, we so often don't ask that question. We assume that we already know what the athletes want. So um, is that something you, the conversations you've had in your practice? Yes, we're having those conversations and we're recognizing there's um, finite resources and the people there's so, there's so much silo action going on in higher education and you've got presidents and chancellors that are at the table making decisions, athletics directors that are stroking big deals and have their own goals and feeling pressures from boosters and athletes and others um, who might be spending the money before they even get it. And then you've got your stewards of finances who are not necessarily being treated and elevated to the level they should be to be able to be more proactive in planning, a, tying finances to a strategy and being more forward-looking. Right now, they're more historians and the no people that are just saying, no, we can't, we don't have enough money to spend. <laughs> and so, you know, really elevating that position um, in the, you know, the CFO's chair in an athletic department and you know, that there's this whole debate on is college athletics a business or is it, you know, public sector? And, and it's like, well, if, if it's clearly trending as a business and even entities in the public sector or public sector, most cases as accountants, we see CFOs and CEOs are tied at the hip and are collaborating every day and running the business. And that's not what we see happening in college athletics, and especially when you're looking at college athletics and then the university or college as a whole and, and how all of that leadership and decision-making works. And there's context that's missing a lot. And I think if you have the CFO at the table, they can help to quantify some of that data. So yes, that's one of many things that we talk about in our firm right. as far as what schools could be doing to help provide more context for better decision-making. Wow, there's so much to unpack there about what you said, but while you were talking about the CFO and CEO being joined at the hip, it strikes me that that's what people do with their, their financial planners when they're trying to prepare for the next phase of their life. They're trying to figure out what can I afford to do? Where might be a good place to do this strategically now? It's forward-looking versus it sounds like the athletic departments traditionally have just been, you know, what have we spent? I mean, just the bottom line kind of number. Is, is, is that a fair analysis of that? 
Yes. And I mean, the business offices and athletic departments work hard and they work on these projections and they have all this information, but oftentimes they aren't involved in the strategy setting or decision-making process. So okay. while they have this information and they're working hard to make the most of the numbers they have and utilize the limited resources they have to the best that they can, they don't always have a voice. So the voice that's usually heard is that historian bottom line voice. Got it. Got it. So if I if I'm uh, an AD and all of a sudden I start to realize that my soccer stadium is way out of date and I might need to relocate it, so we're going to have to build from the ground up. I should be having my CFO sitting in, in with me as we build the projections for the cost of that stadium, as well as how we're going to pay for it, not just the donors or the coach or that type of thing. Absolutely. And, and when it's something big, like a facilities project, usually the CFO is getting involved. Now, the CFO might get involved once we, they figure out the how. Okay. The CFO may not be involved when you, you're assessing competing priorities and it's a decision of, do we build a soccer stadium now or do we wait a year or two? Okay. Um, and having more of a proactive approach to best funding that facility. Um, but but that's the type of transaction that presidents and 80s need the CFO involved in because it involves financing. You're also dealing with development for the fundraising side and you know, what's your fundraising campaign? What's the debt? How much debt can we take? How much debt do we already have? Right. So what, you know, because, you know, the lenders are looking at certain things and you have to have financially strong statements to be able to give them comfort to lend the money. And then you've got to know what your donor's appetite is to donate the money. And so I think sometimes those conversations aren't happening early enough. But in those cases, generally the CFO is involved where it changes is um, where, where maybe they're not as involved is when you're looking at personnel, um, hiring someone new, terminating someone before the end of their contract um, and other initiatives like that. Um, even the things, you know, I go on facility tours a lot and I'll hear, oh, the, the wrap on this wall, which the wrap means you know, the, the large graphics of athletes, you know, that take up the entire wall, you know, the wrap cost this, like, do they know and do they understand, you know, that could have been spent here, or you hear, feel a lot of pressure from a coach that all of the athletes need this type of meal or this type of bed or this something, and, and is that really feasible, or we need to charter these flights, we don't need to, you know, and more charters, more charters, and this team got a charter, so now I want a charter, and and not really understanding the big picture of finances, and that's where I think the CFO could be more involved as part of the decision making and policy setting and the strategy. Is this within our strategy? So let me just clarify for my listeners. So are we talking about the department CFO or the university CFO or both? Um. I'm mostly speaking about the department CFO, but I do think that you're going to have the most success if your department CFO and your campus CFO are working together okay. and not working in opposition of each other. So one of the things that you and I talked about uh, ahead of the podcast was that schools need to do a good job of explaining and, and how did you frame, frame it? Uh, not, not oversharing, but to strategic sharing 
of their financial yeah. data. That's a, a phrase I had not heard before. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we we put out something that said balancing transparency and oversharing. And what we mean by that is being strategic and how to be transparent because so often you keep things close to the vest and there's not enough sharing. And you want to be transparent, but you're afraid you're going to overshare. And okay. so what's that fine line of strategic transparency that you're getting ahead, you're creating a financial narrative, filling in the gaps that the NCAA framework and what's available to the public is, you know, where what's missing and providing more color around the numbers, you know, more of the story around the finances, because finances are a snapshot of a one point in time. Right. And it doesn't talk about your past. It doesn't talk about your future. It's just, here's what it looks like right now. And there's no why behind it. Uh, so really what to put out there to help fill in some of those gaps and not being afraid to have something available to share with campus, you know, the campus CFO, president, chancellor, trustees to really understand what's going on. Um, and oftentimes we hear, oh, trustee read in the paper, X, Y, Z, and that's not even true, you know? And so it's having something to even hand over to the media when they call. And I know, I mean, even I personally have been burned by a member of the media who just misquoted me because they aren't, they aren't accountants. They don't understand the terminology. And so if you have something in, in narrative form that you can hand over to help them do their job, then hopefully there's more positive um, response to what they're reporting on and, and better clarity and understanding. So is, is that a graphic? Is it a two-page report? What, what do those typically look like? I mean, it could be anything really. I mean, I think it depends on who it is. Um, you know, I would think it could be a two-page report that even you read from and talk about, but then you hand over if the reporter's not recording the conversation. Um, I think, uh, you know, it could be a dashboard for a president to help understand where things are. You know, maybe it's a, a dashboard that's graphics. Um, okay. If you're wanting to communicate to donors, um, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to want it to be pretty and have the graphics and show some of the non-financial statistics, like number of championships we've won, number of student athletes we serve, you know, things like that, that tie in with the financial piece and really display here's our ask, here's what we need, here's where you can help um, to keep this going and make this better. And so I think it really depends on the audience and how, how you present it. Makes sense, makes sense. Uh, as we start to wrap it up, I know that you guys do other audits besides just the uh, NCAA uh, annual audits. So what kinds of other audits should a university president at least be aware of? Yeah, so in universities, um, generally any of the separate nonprofits that support a university, um, you know, foundation, research, um, healthcare system, areas like that um, are generally audited. Um, there might be, uh, there's usually a lot of internal audits happening on campus that, you know, they look at overall risks for the entire university and design a plan and really try to focus on certain areas. And it could be anywhere on campus. Um, and, and understanding what, you know, what's what, what are the risks? What are they looking at? Have they found any problems? And then have they corrected the problems if there were problems? Um, 
and then uh, you know really also any kind of reporting that happens um, if you're a separate 501c3 type entity there are even though you're tax exempt there are still tax filings okay um, and a lot of it they're called informational returns and there's a lot of information in those um, so what's being put out there um, and those are you know, available to the public. So what is the public seeing? Do I understand what it is? So if someone wants to talk to me about it, I know how to respond. And, and are these used for, are there uh, every 10 years uh, accreditation by uh, regional educational agencies? Do you know? You know, I, the level of work that we do, I don't know that it does. So we primarily work with public institutions and those separate foundations and other entities, their financial data rolls up into the state um, system. Um, beyond that, anything that's EADA related or other finances, that's generally done by, you know, it could be a state auditor or it could be one of the large international type accounting firms. Um, our, we are more niche focused, so I couldn't say we haven't been involved with the accreditation piece, but I mean, there are definitely financial components to that, and you'll want to have peace of mind that those numbers are sound and and good. <laughs> well, Katie, you've been a tremendous source of uh, information and I always appreciate your Twitter handle. I'll put your Twitter handle also in the show notes because you have, provide a lot of good commentary on NIL, on NCAA finances and other key areas. So hopefully presidents will take the opportunity to follow you. Um, any last minute pieces of advice for new presidents to kind of take on this understanding of college athletics and finances? You know, I think come in with an open mind and try to build relationships and understand, you know, what you're doing, where you've come from, what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, talk to the athletes, talk to your coaches and administrators and staff and business office and everyone and just try to really understand the relationship between campus and athletics and what that means. You know, is the institution supporting athletics? How does athletics support the institution? And it's oftentimes a two-way street. And, and so really just understanding that and, and then what the needs are going forward. Katie, it's great information to have. I really appreciate you taking a few moments to, to, to share with us your wisdom and also you know lessons you've learned from the conversations you've had with various university campuses. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Karen.